at this point in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, I want to let you know we're about six to seven months away from the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So things are getting really close. Jesus is about to set his face towards Jerusalem. His disciples are very close to making their way south uh, to enter into Jerusalem as the Passion Week would begin, Jesus' final week and his earthly ministry before he dies for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus had just performed another miracle of provision by feeding 4,000 plus women and children with seven loaves of bread. We've read the previous story where he fed five plus thousand people with five loaves and two fish. And after this miracle, Jesus heads to a new region where he has an important conversation with his disciples, which is what we're going to talk about today. And I'll open up here, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. The Bible says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned them and saying, who do people say that I am? And they told him saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And Matthew's gospel, he goes on to say, the son of the living God. And he warned them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes or desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Everything that Jesus had done up to this point was very much solid proof of who he was. And that, that meaning he was the Messiah, the Christ. He was the son of the living God, the anointed one, the, the long-awaited Messiah. Although this is true and all that we have studied up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, there still was a certain level of confusion about his identity. And that we see not only from the Pharisees, the Pharisees did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. A couple chapters ago, we referenced where the text tells us they were jealous. So they didn't want to believe that he was the Messiah. But just a little bit ago, Jesus had an encounter with them, and they said, prove to us that you have this divine authority and show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus sighed deeply and said, I'm not going to give you no sign. That's the way I would say it. But Jesus said, I ain't giving you no sign. He's not going to give them a sign to prove to them anything because they were blind. The signs were all around them. Jesus was doing what no one else could do. But now they're asking, prove to us that you are who people think that you are. But that's not the only thing that we're looking at. We also know the disciples also had a level of confusion about the person of Jesus, 
even though they thought he was the Messiah. Peter just declared, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one of God. But they felt some confusion. Jesus did not fit their theological construct. They had a certain expectation for who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do when he came. And Jesus was not doing those things. Jesus did not come in the kind of power that they thought the Messiah would come. Jesus didn't rise to the place that they all were looking for and longing for and hoping for. See, they wanted the Messiah to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted the Messiah to rise to military and political power. That's the kind of power that they were thinking about. And so they're going, when is this going to happen? But it just wasn't happening. Now, they saw Jesus's power. Amen. He had power. He's healing the sick. Who does that? He's delivering people of demonic power. Who does that? Clearly, he has a power that is otherly. He has a power that is different than what they're looking for. Everybody is awaiting the Messiah, but it seems like in order to follow Jesus, he's got to totally fit the bill. So there's this confusion that's going on. And, and I was started thinking about how sometimes we place expectations on who God should be and how God should be. I think we live in a generation and a time that is quite a bit different from what they were waiting for and longing for, but we certainly live in a time where people are trying to fashion God into their own image where people are expecting God to be a certain way or to do a certain thing. And, and if he doesn't do that, I'm not going to follow him. And so isn't it interesting that Peter gets confronted by the words of Jesus, get behind me, Satan. I want to tell you today, that's where we should be. We should all be behind Jesus following him, not asking him to follow us. And I think when we look at the text, there's something very clear that I think is sort of laid out just in the passages themselves. And I'm going to talk to you about these three things. The first is the person of Jesus. He established who he was. The second is the plan of Jesus. He established what he was about to do, and he said it plainly. And the third part of this is the pattern of Jesus. He taught his disciples what their way in life was going to be like. So let's look at the first in verse 27, the person of Jesus. I'll read to you again these verses. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he questioned them saying, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. Another translation says Jeremiah. There was a legend that some, when they say other prophets, it would be uh, Jeremiah. Some people were thinking that during his time. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. In verse 27, we read this, that Jesus takes his disciples 25 miles north to the district of Caesarea Philippi, far away from all Jewish territory. This is all the way into this Gentile region that was originally known as Panius, which was named in honor of the Greek god Pan. Now, the Greek god Pan was the god of shepherds and flocks. And this is the place that Jesus decided he wants to reveal explicitly, clearly who he is to his disciples. He's going to speak to them plainly. I'm going to tell you exactly who I am, and I'm going to do it right here in a place of pagan worship. I mean, just sort of as a polemic in a sense, like I'm going to put the stake in the ground and make sure you guys all know this is who I am. And he does this by asking them two questions. And the first one, of course, which we've read twice now, is who do people say that I am? What is the chatter? What are the polls saying? What's going on on Instagram? What's happening on YouTube and Facebook? You know, 
depending on how old you are. Let's get all the generations in here. Who do people say that I am? And they give him three different answers. John the Baptist is dead, but they say John the Baptist. Elijah is dead. And one of the prophets, all of these are dead. Think about that for a moment. It's more feasible for people to believe that one of these individuals has risen from the dead than for Jesus to actually be the Messiah. This is the narrative. And, and just sort of, it's, it's, it's the reality that they're faced with in their culture because the Jewish people, although they're waiting for their Messiah, it is very obvious by this response that Jesus does not look like what they are waiting for. I mean, certainly he's otherly. He's like no one they've ever seen or ever known before, but he is not fitting the bill or the criteria that they had for the long-awaited Messiah. There's hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. People are crying out, waiting for their Messiah to come and liberate them for hundreds of years, and they just could not wrap their mind around Jesus being that one because he isn't doing what they think he should do if he is the Messiah. He had power, but it was a different kind of power. They all had this idea that if the Messiah is going to come, he is going to come in such a power that he will rise above all other kingdoms and all other kings, and he will do it in a conquering way. This is the way that he's going to come. They're thinking about the conquering king. And I would like to tell you that there are two different categories of prophecies about the Messiah who's to come. The first is that of the first coming. He comes as a suffering servant, Isaiah 53. They didn't understand that. And the second coming is where Jesus actually will be the judge that we know he is coming as. Jesus will come and judge the living and the dead. Everybody will be accountable before him who has to do. We all will give an account. He's not coming. He did not come that way the first time. He will come this way the second time. He is God. He is king. He is Lord over all. That will be revealed. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. This is our reality. We are awaiting that very fact. It will come to pass, but it didn't at, at that time. And so Jesus asked the second question after getting all of the polls, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is the most important question. And Peter speaks up with great clarity and confidence, which we know Peter to do in the wrong times. He's doing it now at the right time. He says, you are the Christ. And Matthew 16, you are the son of of the living God. Now we can't miss this because Peter is speaking against all opinions and teachings and ideologies in the face of what he doesn't understand. He's declaring what he, he knows to be true. Jesus, you're the guy. And when he says that, here's what he's saying. You are the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. You are the one that's going to right every wrong. You are the one that's going to liberate. You are the one that's going to break the powers of injustice. You are the one that's going to break the oppressor. You are that one. I do not understand how you're going to do it because you're not seemingly doing it, but you are the one. Even though Peter did not get it, he still said it. And that's a powerful profession of faith when he spoke up in this way. And Jesus responds, not in this text, but in Matthew 16, a parallel account. In verse 17, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build 
my church. Jesus tells Peter that the revelation that he received was not from flesh and blood. You did not get this because somebody told you who I am. My Father in heaven revealed, opened your eyes, opened your mind, opened your heart. And you know what? The same is true for us. It's not just about us telling each other that Jesus is Lord. We must do that. But God is the one who opens our eyes and God is the one who opens our heart. And when he does that, we place our trust and our faith in him. That is what we do. But God is the one that opens up the eyes of our heart. God is the one that sovereignly touches each person. We go about sharing the gospel, but he is the one that opens our hearts. Now we're in the camp where we believe and we teach from our church that each person has to respond for themselves. We don't believe that God opens the hearts and then makes each person respond. That's not what the text says, nor do I believe that's what the Bible teaches. Some believe that, we don't, but we believe that God opens the heart. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven did. And Peter's the one that stepped out and declared it to be true. Who do you say that I am? The whole church of Jesus Christ is built on the revelation of who Jesus is. I know that there are all whole denominations and there's a history within Christendom that is built on this verse, Matthew chapter 16, that would suggest that Peter is the rock that Jesus is talking about. Well, Peter's name, the name that Jesus changed is he was Cephas and now it's Peter. It means little stone. And it's sort of a play on words. When Jesus said, upon this rock, He's using a play on words because Peter's name means little stone and upon this rock, and we would believe, and I believe the text would say this, and also Peter's interpretation of this would not be that the whole church is built upon Peter. I don't, I don't believe that. In fact, I just don't think Peter would have gotten very far without bragging too much. I mean, I don't have time to unpack this. I could, I, I could do that. I could talk to you about the Catholic Church. I have disagreements. Obviously, we're Protestant for a reason. I have big disagreements with the Catholic Church. And that isn't to, you know, sort of defame them today. But my point is, is that I just simply don't agree with their interpretation of this verse, that the whole church is built upon Peter as the apostle. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter actually clarifies what he believes for us. He says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone for which all of the living stones of the church are built upon. So it seems to me that Peter himself tells us exactly what Jesus meant. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The church is not built on Peter. It's built on Jesus. It's built on the revelation of Christ. It's built on the answer to this revelation as well. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Every person's going to give an account for their answer to that question. And I believe he asks us that question today. Some people say that Jesus is a good teacher, a righteous man, a wise counselor, a fictional person, maybe a legendary personality. But you and I know that he is, like Peter says, the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the anointed one. He is the righteous king. He is the one that is ruling and reigning as he returns to planet earth. And he is calling his people even now to bow their knee and to confess him as Lord and Savior. But I want to be clear to you today that everybody's going to give an account for the answer that they give. Every person is going to give. You you can push this answer off, but we all will give an account for it. So Jesus reveals clearly, this is who I am. And Peter professes his faith in him. But secondarily, what Jesus does is reveal his plan. Look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. 
And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him as- oh Peter. Peter took him aside. And he began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, "Get behind I try to get this right. I was like working on, "Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man. Don't, don't you want to hear how he said that too? Is that just me? I want to hear how he said it. What did it sound like when he said this to Peter? That was a bad Thursday for Peter to be called Satan. It's like Jesus is doing this. Now that you know that I'm the Messiah, now that you know I'm the one, that's very clear, right? Now that you know, let me tell you the plan of salvation. And then here's the plan, guys. Suffering, rejection, death, resurrection. There it is. And I think that they were excited at first, like, he's the guy, we're following the one. He knew he was the one. Thomas, I told you he was the one. I've been telling you this whole time. I know we've had a lot of bread and I thought so, but now we know. And then Jesus goes, here's the plan. Suffering, rejection, death, resurrection. Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe we're wrong. The plan doesn't sound right. The statement, I think, it shook Peter. What do you mean suffer? You're supposed to end all suffering. You're supposed to make Rome suffer. You're not supposed to suffer. This doesn't make any sense to me. He couldn't conceive of a suffering servant. He only thought of a conquering king. So Peter takes Jesus aside, as as we read here in the text, and it says he rebuked him. This word rebuke is a very strong word. And in one way, you could say he issued his utter disapproval of the plan. Jesus, you, you cannot be in your right mind. This is not the way that it is supposed to go. Of course, Peter does know, right, how it's supposed to happen. And Jesus turns, listen to this. It says he turns and he looks at the disciples, not just Peter. Peter's speaking to Jesus. Now Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in your, in your words, in, in your mind, this is, this is not the thoughts of God. This is the mind of man. What is he saying here by calling him Satan? Well, the name Satan means adversary. That's what Satan's name means when he says, get behind me, Satan. I believe what Jesus is saying is that any counsel that opposes the plan of God, including suffering, is satanic at its core. Any words, any ideology, any espousing that we do that is opposite or opposing that which is true and that which God is doing is satanic at its core. I've talked to you before about spiritual warfare. And sometimes the Pentecostal church is very guilty of having a very wacky version of spiritual warfare. Just go ahead and say amen because it's true. All right. We're trying to get out of that because it's just like, where's the demon, you know? And we deal with demonic power. We, we cast demons out. We, we know their influence is very real, but we also understand, especially as Apostle Paul teaches throughout his letters to the Corinthians and the Ephesians, that we're in an ideological warfare. The enemy broadcasts thoughts. He wants to get people to believe a certain thing. Friends, this is why every apostle warned the church in their day against false doctrine, false teaching. And it wasn't just teaching that was in the church, but it was also teaching in the world that was about the church. Bad or false teaching does not just come in the church. Sometimes today we talk about cultural lies. 
It's not that we're demonizing everything in the culture, but culture is something that is absolutely discipling all of us in this room right now, whether we want to believe it or not. You cannot tell me that secularism and humanism and radical individualism is not trying to disciple every person in this room right now. You cannot turn on the news and and somehow disagree that that is not a fact. We are being discipled by our culture or we are being discipled by our Savior. And we have to choose the words of Jesus. You will not be a disciple automatically. We will not get up in the morning and say, I'm a Christian, not read this book, not have a vibrant prayer life, not have a life of fellowship with other believers and somehow pop out a really great disciple of Jesus. It just doesn't happen. Because we are inundated with the culture. We are inundated with lies from every side, from our music to our media to our politics to you name it. It has saturated this entire world that we are a part of. The spiritual warfare that we primarily face is ideological. Sometimes you'll have a a warfare that I won't get into today. But when Jesus speaks this to Peter, He says, get behind me, Satan. He was not talking to his person. He was talking to his perspective. He was saying, you do not, listen to what he says, you do not have in your mind, you are setting your mind on God's, not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. See, that's what Satan did from the beginning in the garden. He told them to eat what God said not to eat, and he told them that God was a liar and he was holding out on them. God did not say. God did not say. See, he's holding out on you because he knows the day that you eat from the tree, you'll be like him. He's lying to you and he's holding out on you. And if you eat this, you'll find out for yourself just how, just how much he's holding out just how much he's withholding from you. If, if you do what he told you not to do, then you're going to be like him. See, the temptation from the devil was not just to disobey God, it was to be like God without God. That you can be like, you're already made in his image, but you can be like him without him. In other words, you can be him. Here's the temptation of the evil one, and Peter doesn't want to suffer. He hears the plan of Jesus, and it's not what he expected nor what he wanted, We don't relate to this per se on many levels. Like I didn't grow up thinking that Jesus was going to come back and overthrow Rome. I wasn't a young Hebrew boy that grew up uh, in Jewish school and we talked about and thought about our coming Messiah and what that was going to do and overthrow oppression. So I just, I don't fully relate to their expectation and what they were thinking and what this meant for them and how this would have messed with Peter's mindset. But I certainly can relate to the immaturity that I see in this response of Peter that Jesus Christ is going to come or the Messiah is going to come so that I wouldn't suffer. That's the idea. The Messiah is going to come so that I don't have to suffer. And I think that we've just got to sort of pause and realize that sometimes we too can have whatever expectations in our world or in our life towards God, we can have those expectations not met. And it can create not only disappointment, but disillusionment with who we think God is. That can happen to us as well. I started to think about this word disillusionment because it happens to us. This is why false teaching is so dangerous. Disillusionment means to be disappointed in someone or something that one discovers to be less good than they previously believed. 
So when a person gets bad teaching or false ideas, and they're, they're given this, this, this stuff, whether it's a, a teaching or even just a, you know, some, kind of, uh, some kind of encouragement, and they put this all on God, like this is who God is, and this is what God's going to do. And when that doesn't happen, it can create a disillusionment in someone's heart because what they expected God to be like and what they expected God to do did not happen. And so now they walk around with a disappointment because he didn't meet my expectations. This is why, amen, this is why, <laughs> amen, this is why it is so vital for us to be connected to God's Word. There is a, a power in disillusionment that cannot be consoled. It requires deliverance. Deliverance of false thoughts, false ideas, false theology. Jesus does not necessarily save us from our suffering, but he promises to save us through his suffering. That's the plan. The Son of Man must come, suffer, be rejected, die, and raise from the dead because I've got to bring the forgiveness of sin to all the world. You have sin. Sin is the problem. You might ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die because he was taking our place. Every one of us is going to die. Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We are going to die and face God. But what Jesus did is he stood in our place, a perfect one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He stood in our place. He willingly gave his life, and he has this we talk about today in communion, the precious blood of Jesus flowed out so that by his wounds, we could be made whole. And that's through cleansing and forgiveness. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, in his precious life, in his finished work, in his death, in his resurrection from the dead, knowing that he's God's son and he took our place, we receive his righteousness that we do not have and did not deserve. Jesus had to die. He didn't understand that. Peter was overlooking the sin of the world. He was just simply looking to the conquering king coming. He did not understand why the servant had to suffer. Isaiah 53, even today in Jewish circles, is still sort of that forbidden text that people don't want to talk about. Jesus may not stop all of our pain, but he promises to redeem us in the midst of of our pain. See, when all of this is said and done, friends, no matter what we go through in this life, what we know is the promise of God is that he will redeem us and he will make all things right. That's who he is and that's what he does. Peter did not understand that and so he was trying to get out of any suffering. He was trying to get out of any pain and to the point where he would even rebuke Jesus. No, Jesus, you can't do that. You won't do that. You shouldn't do that. And he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're supposed to be behind me, not in front of me. You're supposed to be pointing to the way, leading the way, but right now you're in the way. Get behind me, man. Come on now. And then Jesus goes into talking about his pattern because, friends, as we know, that if we don't accept the plan of Jesus and what he had to go through on our behalf, then we're definitely going to resist the pattern of Jesus to become like him in this life and to do as he does to follow where he goes. Look at this, the pattern of Jesus, verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wishes or desires to come after me, he must deny himself. Luke says he must first deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me daily, Luke says. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's a great question, isn't it? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What's worth it? That's what Jesus is asking. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, and that's again in the light of suffering, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. As Jesus rebuked Peter, he was speaking to all of his disciples, and then he lays out the pattern, he lays out the path. Hey guys, not only am I going to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again, but you will as well. He even says it to him in John 16. He says, listen, in this world, you're going to have trouble, tribulation, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And you just got to hold on. That's why people have said this for years, that probably a thousand years, people said, just hold on. See, they're, they're believing that something is coming. We get so conditioned to want something to happen now. We want everything now. We don't want to suffer today. We don't want to go through pain we don't want to experience any ridicule in the name of Jesus. Friends, listen to me. I don't want to be heavy today. I don't. I don't. Amen. 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 I don't want to be heavy today. But can you read this text and come away with any other sense than you're called to something that is, that is serious? You're called to something that requires and demands a response where we, where we bid to come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say that too, that when Christ bids someone to come, he bids them to come and die. That's a hard thing to hear, I know. Who wants to get excited about that? I, I, I don't think I do, but I know it's true. If you desire to follow me, Jesus says, you must first deny yourself. Following Jesus is not first about self-fulfillment, it's about self-denial. This is literally what brings life, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's that when we deny ourselves, that's when we experience life. It seems contradictory, right? It's a paradoxical invitation. It's like you win by losing. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't make any sense. This is why the disciples were messed up in their mind, like you're talking all this stuff. I don't get it. And he goes, well, here's what you need to get because you're going to follow my pattern as well. But if you withhold your life, listen, if you withhold giving your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life, guess what? You're going to find it. And I can imagine them going like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Just listen well. I was thinking about an illustration. I, I know I had a lot less time because of baptisms, but um, how many of you like oxymorons? I, I think young people, when I was a kid, I just liked the word oxymoron. Just like to get away with what I thought was on the edge of a cuss word, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's not, but you understand, kids, and sometimes kids at heart, do what we do. There are a lot of oxymorons in the world, like jumbo shrimp. That's a, that's a how about tight slacks? Is that a good one? You'll get that one on the way home. That's, help your spouse with that. Uh, I, I read this one recently, genuine imitation. <laughs> this seems kind of weird. Microsoft works. That's a, that's a weird, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, Apple's thankful for that. It's a government efficiency. No, that's too soon. I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's bad. That's, I was just, that's a joke. That's all. I'm not trying to do that today. 
Um, and for you, some of you, adorable cat. That's, uh, that's definitely not... It's, uh, <laughs> this is a joke, people. Love your cats. I don't care. I was just joking. Probably, though, the greatest oxymoron in the world is this, half-hearted Christian. The Bible doesn't know anything about it. When Jesus told his disciples this very statement, it was weighty, and it should feel that way. I'm not going to try to take it away from you. I want to encourage you. I want you to smile. I, I, I love Joel Osteen. I love his hair, his smile. You know, amen, just bless God. I love that. I just, but I read these texts, and I go, man. I read these texts, and I go, oh. You want to save your life, you've got to give it. I mean, we have to read that and take it for what it means. Like, pause for a minute and absorb that into your heart and go, this is exactly what Jesus is trying to say. I gave you life, and I want you to give back your life. And when you give back your life, you're going to find life. See, but you can't know it unless you do it. That's what he's talking about. You just simply can't know it. So God doesn't want to make us better. He wants to make us deader. Paul goes on to talking about putting, putting to death the old man. And ladies, he's not talking about your husband. You know, it's like, it's not what he's talking about. You know, it's like, I've been talking about that for years. I have. It's not what he means. When Jesus talked to them about the cross, think about this, okay? Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you really want to follow me, and I think that's the question for us today. If you really want to follow me, if that's your desire, I'm going to tell you how to do it. You got to first deny yourself. Notice he didn't say deny sin. Did you, did you, did you notice that? He didn't say deny sin. He said deny self. Why? Because sin is attached to that self-focused, self-first lifestyle. We have to deny self because that's what sin is attached to. You want to follow me, you've got to deny self. You've got to put God and others first. You have to deny self. And then you need to take up with the instrument of death. Now listen, they didn't get Jesus was going to die on a cross. When he said cross, this is what they were thinking of. They were thinking of the Roman capital punishment. It's perhaps the greatest form of degradation against a criminal. It was Rome's version of power to say, we're in charge. We're the ones that you should fear. We're going to put people up on a hillside and we're going to crucify criminals or anybody that speaks against Rome. We're going to put them out in the open and we're going to crucify them. It was a form of capital punishment that spoke of Rome's power. And you know what's interesting? It's Jesus took that very thing and he said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Don't wait for somebody to do it to you. They have no power over you. Willingly give your life. I mean, talk about flipping power on, on its head. Jesus has a different kind of power. Friends, sometimes we're looking for the kind of power that conquers, smashes, usurps, controls, tells people what to do. Isn't that what the disciples wanted? That's what the disciples thought. They thought, this is the plan. This is how it's going to happen. He's going to conquer. He's going to rise up and take over. We're going to take over with him. But no, you're going to take over. But you, it's you. <laughs> we're going to take over with him. And Jesus says, no, no, the kind of power that I'm talking about, the kind of power that I'm bringing is the kind where you willingly give yourself. And although it looks like defeat to everyone else, it actually is the place of victory. I think it's just this profound thing that Jesus did because he's entirely otherly. He is not like us. He is nothing like us in that regard. He is high above. 
His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is greater than. He is more than. He is different than. He is holy. There is no one like him. You want to know the place of victory? You've got to find it through humility. You want to know how you're going to find your life? You've got to give your life. And that's the tension, isn't it? This cross, this thing about the cross is what he teaches them, that you've got to willingly give your life over, that when people come to take your life, they can't take it because you've already given it. You gave it away to other people. That's what you chose to do. And that's exactly what they're about to see in him six months later. In six months, this teaching is going to come right back to their mind and go, oh my gosh, I did not realize what Jesus was talking about. And now I saw it in flesh and blood. Jesus gave his life. His life was not taken. He gave his life. His life was not taken. He came to give his life. And he tells us to do the same thing. Give your life for everyone else around you that they might come into the kingdom of God and be rightly related with their heavenly father. That's what it means to carry the gospel. That's what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples. That's what we're doing in this world for the rest of our life. When Jesus calls us to follow him, it's not just a mental ascent in our mind, like I believe in you. It's also we submit to his plan and we follow his pattern. That's what it means. It's like writing a, does anybody know what a check is anymore? <laughs> you know what a check is? You know, it's that thing that you write for, send out for your bills. All right. I still use them. But when you write a check for $400, it's a specified amount. I think in some versions of Christianity, what we're doing is we're writing out a, how far we'll go how much it will cost us, how far I'll go in following Jesus, $400. No, no, no. Jesus says, give me a blank check. Give me a blank check. When you come to me, give me a blank check. That means in whatever you want and whatever way you want it, whatever you want to do, I give you my whole life. That's what Jesus said. Give me a blank check. Do not write the amount in. Date it, sign it, and give it to me. Give me the blank check of your life. That's what Jesus calls us to. And friend, he calls us to nothing less than that. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, that leads us to a very special time in our service where we get to witness some people making a profession of faith and saying, I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ. You know what baptism is? Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. Baptism is not salvation. Baptism is the profession of faith that says, I am already saved and I am walking into these waters of deliverance where my old life is drowned out and my new life is that I rise again with Christ and I have experienced newness of life. I'm saying to every principality, every power and every person, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. And isn't it fitting with this passage today that we just read? Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will also be ashamed of him. Don't you love the fact that today, that we get to witness a couple people saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Ryan, if you could open this up. Don't pay any attention to the man that's opening the door here to your right. He's just opening a door, people. That's all he's doing. But while he does that, let me ask you this question today. If Jesus would ask you and me, who do you say that I am? He's just opening a door. Don't worry, it's gonna happen. Who do you say that, who do you say that I am? What's your answer? Who do you say that I am? That's the question that we're all accountable to. Who do you say that I am? Would you just bow your heads quickly with me before we have this time? I want to honor the presence of God today, and I just want to respond to this message with you. Father, we thank you today for your love, and I pray, Lord, that every person in this room today that 
as we're asked that question by the passage, that our response would be the same as Peter's. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is in you that we have placed our trust. And so today, Lord, I ask that you would search our hearts. And if there would be anybody here, Lord, that really needs to make that declaration like Peter did to put that stake in the ground, I pray that would happen today. If you're here today and and watching online and you don't know that you have a relationship with Jesus, you don't know if you're forgiven of your sins, you don't know where you'll be when you die, if you're going to be with him or not, I just want to give you an opportunity today before we um, move into a time of baptisms that if you want to respond just simply to the gospel that Jesus came, died in your place for the forgiveness of your sins, that you and I could have a relationship with God and receive eternal life. If you need to respond to the call of salvation, I want to give you that opportunity. You say to me today, Pastor Ben, I have never, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I'm his. I, I want to be in relationship with Jesus. I want to be forgiven of my sin. I just want to ask you to acknowledge that. I'm not going to have you come forward, but acknowledge that by raising your hand today. If you need to start a relationship with Jesus today, to be forgiven of your sin, I'm asking you, just raise your hand. If there's anybody here today that needs to do that, I want to see your hand today. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Yeah, I see two people. Is there anybody else? Yes, sir. I'll just give you a couple more seconds. Is there anybody that needs to do that today? Just raise your hand. Say, Ben, I'm just acknowledging that, and we can pray after the service together. Okay, there's three people today praying that prayer. Is there anybody today that you'd say, Ben, I need to at least rededicate my life to Jesus. I I believe in him, but man, I've walked away. I've walked away. I need to come back home. And I'm not talking about being a perfect Christian. Nobody in this room is, but I'm talking about you know that you're far away from the Lord and you need to put a stake in the ground. I don't just believe in him, but I'm going to follow him as well. If you need to do that today and you want to rededicate your life, present yourself to God, I want you to raise your hand as well. Nobody's looking around, just me. Just raise your hand if that's you today. Yeah, I see you. Yeah, there's a couple of us in the room. Is there anybody else? Say, Ben, I need to do that today. I I need to rededicate my life to Jesus. There's a few of us are praying both of these prayers. So let's pray this together. Father, we thank you. Just pray with me. In the name of Jesus, we come. And I ask you, Lord, right now that you would minister to our hearts and you would help us, Lord, to not only name you as Lord, but submit our lives to you and all that that means. You can have us, Lord, the blank check. We just give you the blank check of our lives and we pray that you would write in there the amount. Whatever it means, Lord, whatever it is, Lord, we give you ourselves today. I thank you. Bless these ones that were raising their hands and I pray that even after the service, we could have a time of prayer and see your transformation. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Hey, would you stand as we close? I want to... uh, in our services moving forward, not, not able to do that this weekend, but we want to have a little bit of time at the end of the service uh, for ministry and prayer and response. So we don't, we don't have that today. I just have a minute or two. But as we were praying in the prayer room earlier, we do that uh, before the services. We receive words, words of knowledge, prophetic words. That could be for anybody in the room, and we, we find that this is the case, that God gives us words, and so we share them. If you're new to the church, we share them. We believe in gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, here's some things that I want to share with you as we pray. Um, I had a picture of somebody that was in experiencing unusual emotions, and I mean that un- is unusual, and you feel 
deeply drained, and it's just feel like you know you're constantly being drained. You're overwhelmed, maybe even feeling embarrassed about it because you don't understand it. And here's what I say to you today. The Lord is your comforter, and there is healing for your heart even within something you do not understand, even within something you do not understand. You just feel drained emotionally. It continues to happen. And then I also had a picture of somebody that had back surgery and I couldn't tell if you had maybe sometimes uh, we get we have metal in our back. We can have rods and screws and all that. Um, I thought that I might have seen that as well. But you have pain that's been getting worse and worse and worse. And I had a picture in like your medicine cabinet was full of a lot of pills. And that, I'm not trying to guilt you for that. Obviously, we take pills and we get prescribed medication. But I just had this sense to pray for you today that you've had a back surgery and it's been getting worse and worse in these latest days that God could bring healing to your back that even pills cannot bring a relief for. Amen. We're going to pray for that today as well. And lastly, I had this picture of a house and I think it's fitting for our message today, but it was like this house was um, had been there for some time, but like ivy and trees had grown all around it looking like it was vacant. You've seen that before, like a house that just looked like it hadn't been uh, lived in for a long time. And I felt like this was a prophetic picture of somebody's faith, that you have vacated your faith, like your walk with Jesus is not where it used to be. You built the house, it was, your faith used to be beautiful, it was wonderful, I mean, it was vibrant, it was life-giving, but now it's just sort of everything, the things of the world have grown around it and overwhelmed it. And I... You get to a point like that, even in the natural, and you need somebody, you need a landscaping team to come in and take all that. I want to tell you, God's got a really good spiritual landscaping team, and we don't have to clean ourselves up and come to God. We come to God, and He cleans us up. Isn't that true? Friend, if you're here today, and this is what you feel like your life is like, and you're embarrassed or you're disappointed in yourself and you don't know how to respond, I want to tell you, just respond. That's all you have. God can do the rest of the work. Isn't that true? And we have a prayer team that's going to be available after the service, our pastors and prayer ministers. If you need prayer for any of those things that I mentioned, or you want to come into agreement or anything else, come forward for prayer after the service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for Rachel. We bless her in the name of Jesus. We pray you would fill her with the Holy Spirit. We pray you would keep her from the temptation and the path of the enemy. Lord, we thank you that you're putting her feet on solid ground. And I pray that you would inspire obedience in our church in such a way that Jesus would receive all honor and glory in Jesus' mighty name, we pray. And everyone's said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.